0: friends this is Barky Lungy 101 part two and in this part I'm going to talk about desensitization desensitization is the first prong of my three pronged approach that I'm going to talk about that doesn't mean that it's the most important one it doesn't mean that it's the first one that I dive for all three are important and they all go together so I don't actually do any of these pieces by themselves exclusively so what is desensitization it's defined in human psychology as a treatment or a process that diminishes emotional responsiveness or just plain responsiveness to a stimulus and that stimulus can be negative it can be aversive it can be repetitive it can be something the dog likes or doesn't like um And it reduces this responsiveness through repeated exposure to it. So I kind of like to call it boredom therapy. So it's essentially where it takes, you know, desensitization done well, takes a stimulus that creates a response. So I like the definition that refers to responsiveness because we could say reactivity is simply responsiveness. Um, So it takes something. That currently evokes a response. And then through repeated exposure, that response stops occurring. So, what that means is that the exposure needs to be boring. It needs to be, you know, preferably exposure that does not evoke the response at all, meaning that uh, the thing is basically far enough away or low intensity enough that that responsiveness does not occur. So let's put this into terms of dog training. I'm gonna talk a little bit about a non-reactivity example so that we can kind of get on the same page before I dive into what I specifically do for barky lungy dogs. Desensitization um, was a key part of teaching my dog, Iggy, to accept being home alone. She had separation anxiety and hopefully you heard all about that in the two part separation anxiety series that I did. But essentially what I want to make clear is that rather than trying to help her quote unquote, feel better or like being by herself, I wanted her to understand that being by herself did not need to evoke a response at all of any kind. So I wanted to dull the overall responsiveness that she had to being alone. And I did that with help, which is also, um, in that two part series on separation anxiety, I didn't do this by myself, but with help, I gradually exposed her to periods of absence of my absence over time. So I exposed her literally to 30 seconds of my absence first. And then we, you know, climbed that ladder until she could be alone for 10 minutes. Once she could be alone for 10 minutes, we stretched it to 30 and so on and so on. And now she can be home alone for several hours. I tend not to push it past like five hours because I just, that kind of crosses a line for me personally, but she can be alone for several hours. And that was simply through systematic desensitization of my absence. It was not through pairing my absence with yummy things or fun things, which is classical counter conditioning um, when done correctly. I'm not saying that wouldn't work. I do think there are flaws in that approach, but I'm not a separation anxiety expert, so I'm not going to go any further down You know why I think that's a flawed approach. I'm just here to point out that desensitization was the approach that worked for us. In a similar way, um, you could certainly desensitize your learner to a stimulus that they thought was great um, or exciting. So I really frequently coach my clients to take their dogs on what I call decompression walks. And so these are off-leash hikes, um, off-leash walks out in nature, sometimes with other dogs, sometimes without. And... When my clients first take their dogs on a walk like this, if their dog has never done anything like this, and if you're not in the United States and you're listening to this, you might be a little bit taken aback by the fact that there are plenty of dogs in my country who have never off-leash exercised other than in a fenced yard or um, a fenced dog park type of situation. There are plenty of those dogs. It is not actually commonplace for us in most of the places that humans live. So most of the highly populated areas of the country, it's very uncommon for dogs to have been off-leash at all on any kind of trail. So Plenty of my clients' dogs have never had this experience before. And so, understandably, then these dogs are crazy when that leash first comes off. They've never tasted freedom. They've never had um, a bite of this amazing thing that I personally believe all dogs really need and require for their mental and physical well being. And so they run around like, absolute lunatics and they may scream um until the leash comes off and they may you know bolt down the trail you don't see them for a minute and they they might do all kinds of things that you don't like seeing and i continue to coach my clients to expose the dogs to this off-leash exercise and as the dog becomes satiated the dogs the dog becomes less insane um, about it and that's desensitization as well. So for reactivity, so that's the barky lungy behaviors directed at other dogs that I'm talking about in this series. I find it really vital to introduce these dogs to a desensitization um, process to other dogs. And now notice that I am not actually talking about desensitization paired with counter conditioning. And let me tell you what that looks like. The desensitization part means that you're exposing the dog to the trigger. In this case, that would be other dogs gradually enough that you're not evoking a big response and at enough distance again, that you're not evoking a big, a a huge response. So you're basically exposing the dog to levels of other dog exposure that they can handle and you're building up the level of exposure that you're doing over time. So that's the desensitization piece. The counter conditioning piece would be that also whenever the dog appears, you deliver food or another kind of appetitive stimulus. So very commonly, um, the other dog appears, you feed the dog chicken or tripe or something really fantastic. And then when the other dog disappears, you stop feeding them. Uh, Gene Donaldson referred to this as the open bar, closed bar process. There's nothing wrong with this. It is not the direction I choose to go at this time in my career. I think it will be clear to you why as we go, but essentially I am not interested in producing kind of contrived replacement behaviors. I'm not interested in the dog, seeing another dog and reading that as a cue to turn to their person for food, because don't kid yourself. That is what happens in this process. And if you're really familiar with all of these processes and you're listening to me, you're going, wait a minute, the dog isn't learning a cue here because now we're talking operant conditioning. The dog is learning simply to feel differently. Um, and I'm gonna argue that the dog is learning all of the above all the time. So operant and classical conditioning are not standalone things. They are always both working all of the time, kind of whether you like it or not. So in a classical kind of counter conditioning, I'm sorry, a classic counter conditioning and desensitization protocol, um, the dog will learn, see dog reorient to handler for food. That can be a perfectly wonderful approach for a lot of dogs, and it works beautifully for a lot of my clients, uh, or I'm sorry, a lot of my colleagues who give this to their clients. It can be an absolutely fantastic approach. The limit that I see is that what I'm after in my end result is different from what a lot of pet dog owners are after or need. So if your pet dog owner, if all all that they need would be for their dog to turn away from the other dog and turn to them and then eat a cookie as you walk past, if that's what they need, perfect, go that route, easy, problem solved. My clients are sport dog clients. These dogs have to be truly functional around other dogs. And if they are not truly functional around other dogs, you're either going to see the problem behavior crop up in competition, the barky lungy behavior, which nobody likes. and makes you a pariah very, very fast, um, or you can get banned from competition, or you see the dog's kind of discomfort around other dogs manifest in their performances which is also really problematic as you can imagine so i don't involve the counter conditioning piece in my desensitization piece because it allows us number one to go as slowly as the learner actually needs us to go So sometimes the dog will allow you to move closer to the trigger because they are so highly motivated by the food that they ignore the trigger faster than they would in the absence of the food. The process is still happening, but you're inching closer to the threshold than you could if you weren't using the food. So imagine kind of the same exact scenario, but now you're not feeding the dog. It's just the other dog appears then disappears then you move closer, they appear, then disappear, then you move closer. If you're doing that with the counter conditioning piece and you're feeding the dog every time, it's gonna allow you to get closer um, each time and get closer faster than if you are just using a straight up desensitization approach. So I want to use the straight up desensitization approach so that I have to go as slowly as the learner needs me to go and so that I'm not running the risk of producing kind of that contrived behavior chain that I mentioned of dog sees dog, other dog, dog orients towards handler, dog eats food. I also believe that that process runs the risk of um, sensitizing the dog to the other dog just kind of in a different way. So it doesn't truly desensitize at all. It just produces an entirely different behavioral response. The dog still finds other dogs highly important in this process, um, which tells me that, you know, it's possible true desensitization is not even occurring. But I would really need somebody smarter than me on the podcast to um, piece that out and, and really decide what's happening there. So I use a straight up desensitization approach That does not look at all like the open bar, closed bar situation. The dog is exposed to other dogs the entire time, um, that we are working on desensitization to other dogs rather than having one appear and then go away. I do this by using dog parks that are fully fenced. So if you can find a dog park that is secure that has some open space surrounding it this is not uncommon i find that they tend to be kind of um a postage stamp of dirt surrounded by a fence inside a lovely park you can work outside of the dog park and you can be nice and far away from the dog park and I'd prefer then that your dog is on a long line and a harness, but you need to use whatever safety tools you need to use um, to make you feel comfortable with this process. And the dog is simply allowed to look at the other dogs. They're just allowed to look at them and watch them. That's it. And we don't go any closer then the dog wants to go. But if the dog is curious and wants to go a little closer, we go a little closer. And if the dog is maybe uh, fearful or distasteful of the other dogs and wants to go further, we go further. So we very much let the dog dictate the pace. And in that sense, it feels a lot like Grisha Stewart's Bat 2.0, the difference being that I do not intentionally reinforce choices the dog makes by giving them distance. Instead, I simply allow the dog to sniff to their heart's content and look at the other dog to their heart's content. The other kind of big difference being that if a reaction does break out, so let's say the dog does start barking and lunging at the dog um, inside the dog park, if everyone is safe, that's a big if, then my recommendation is for you to allow that to play out. I know people don't like that. Um, And the truth of the matter is that it is, in my opinion, the smarter behavioral choice. But if it upsets you too much, then don't do it because your feelings do matter. So while I do think it's the smartest behavioral approach to simply allow the dog to have their barky lungy fit and then go straight back to work as soon as they're done, um, and you know, with the caveat that that should not be happening frequently. It's kind of a mistake if it does happen. Um, Then I want you to just kind of go back to your business. But if it upsets you too much or you feel unsafe because maybe the dog might redirect on you or somebody might approach while you're standing there and the dog's kind of losing it, or maybe you just feel too embarrassed to let it go on, then you can certainly interrupt them. And if you are going to interrupt them, you need to learn how to interrupt them pre-reaction. But I'm not going to talk about that because it's all in Grisha's book, BAT 2.0. And it's not what I do. So you can go read about that if that's, if that sounds like a better approach for you, because it does matter how you feel about this process. Um, so I go park outside of the dog park. I call this dog park TV, and I'm just allowing the dog to sniff. That's a really big, important piece because the dog's gathering a lot of information about the other dogs that way. Um, and I just allow them to look at the other dogs as long as they want to. Um, if they're staring. I don't care. Eventually they go sniff and then you move with them. It's important that you don't dictate their movement a whole lot. It's important that you don't have super restrictive equipment on them. It's important that they're allowed to just kind of take it into their best ability. And then you're going to watch the dog as they watch other dogs. And you will notice some some operant behaviors that kind of emerge from this process. So you will start to see what your dog does when they ask you for more space or ask you to go closer to the other dog as their barky lungy behaviors kind of stop working for them because we just stand there and let them play out or maybe we interrupt them. Um, if that's what you want to do, (laughs) um, so you will see something start to emerge. And in my clients, they're usually sport dogs. So they're usually pretty keyed into their handlers. What this starts to look like is that the dog returns to the handler, head up, tail up, loose eyes, loose mouth saying, Hey, I'm okay now, but this is kind of boring me. Beautiful. That's the operant behavior that's emerging that you can begin to pay for later on in your system, but you're watching for it. And I would start to give the dog, um, space from the quote unquote dog park TV when that starts to happen. So they come over, they say, Hey, I'm kind of bored now. Perfect. Go home. You can try again later in the week or the next day. The other version of dog park TV that I might do is I might find out when my local big box store, um, dog training franchise, whatever is letting out their evening classes or their Saturday morning classes. So most weekday evenings and then most Saturday or Sunday mornings, you're gonna have dog training class at big box store pet supply places. Look online, figure out when their classes end and then when they end, you will, you will see the dogs and owners leaving kind of in droves and they'll be heading straight for their cars. You want to scope this out because it's not a good idea if you can't get a big open parking lot. So if it's kind of too tight of a parking lot, it's close to a busy shopping center, etc. It's not going to work. But if you can get a big open parking lot that you can kind of park yourself at the end of and allow your dog to just watch all these dogs go to their cars, that's another version of dog park TV that you can allow the dog to watch. So... It is really important to take necessary precautions if you're going to do what I want you to do and allow the reaction to play out when it occurs. That might mean your dog is in a basket muzzle while you're doing this. It might mean the dog is wearing like a gentle leader with a tab so that you can so that, you know, maybe the dog's wearing a long line and a harness, but you can grab their gentle leader if you need to. Um, You know, no, I'm not in love with that option, but I'm I am in love with people feeling safe and having their dogs able to, um, kind of be a safe member of society, especially during these times, or you might use a front connection harness, or you might forego the long line. You might use a shorter leash. It all depends on kind of what you feel safe doing. And It's really important to understand that I am not intending for you to flood your dog. So another system, another process of exposure therapy is called flooding. So flooding and desensitization are both exposure therapies. They are both um, exposure to the stimulus that creates the unwanted response in order to heal that unwanted response. Flooding is what happens when the dog is exposed at the response provoking level um and they are left at that place in that response provoking level kind of until they stop so and give up so is that what happens when i when you stand there and you let that reaction play out yeah technically it is which is why you need to be careful to avoid that happening um i'm not interested in you slapping a muzzle on the dog and throwing them into the dog park that would be another big example of flooding I'm not interested in that. Um, flooding can be effective for sure, but it can also have major fallout. So I'm going to give you a terrifying example of flooding, um, that I think would have major fallout. And then I'm going to tell you a real world example of flooding that has less fallout, that had less fallout. So one of them is something that happened to me and one of them is not. So the first one would be, so I'm afraid of bees. I'm afraid of all yellow and black stripy insect things. Um, and if you locked me in a closet with a swarm of honeybees and did not let me out until I stopped panicking and truly stopped panicking, had gone into a relaxed or slash learned helplessness state, then you have flooded me, um, against honeybees and you may see a reduced or diminished response to honeybees from me in the future. But it is likely that you would see distrust of the person who put me in the closet in the first place, right? So that would be the fallout most likely. Um, Not to mention the fact that I could have just been stung to death. So that would be bad fallout too. And let me tell you that I was hiking with my dogs once and the trail very quickly became... um, kind of swarmed by honeybees because we were walking through a trail that was in a field of wildflowers. And before I knew it was happening, I was pretty much surrounded by honeybees. And I am again, like I said, I'm terrified. I am not allergic to my knowledge. So this wasn't a truly dangerous situation because honeybees tend to be non-aggressive and I'm not allergic to their stings. But I began to panic anyway, because I was being surrounded by honeybees. I had to engage my breathing, turn around, and walk back out of the field. Because if I kept walking forward, I would go deeper and deeper into the bees and into the field. So I had to turn around and walk back out of the field. And if I laid down and panicked, I wouldn't get out of the field. So I had to find it within myself to walk back out of the field. It took so long to get out of the field and get away from the bees that I had started to calm down anyway. And I had no idea that this did anything to me until fast forward a few years. And I'm walking past a collection of beehives, um, that are on a field near the trails where I walk my dogs today. And I didn't know that the hives were active until I started to realize they were, and I started to see and hear the bees in and around the hives. And it was certainly far enough from them that um, me and my dogs weren't going to disturb them, but I could hear them and I could see them. And there were so many of them. And you guys, I didn't panic. I didn't need to run away. Um, and I didn't develop a distaste for that field or that area. And I'm telling you that pre my flooding incident, I would have. I would have potentially panicked. Um, and I would have certainly avoided the area and I, it would have been, it would have been a different scenario because I know that it would have been because I've been in similar scenarios before my flooding incident. So I don't have any fallout and I can now walk past honeybees without panicking. It did not transfer to other stripy things that I know are more dangerous than honeybees like hornets. Um, but I think it's fascinating. I think I had an effective flooding session. Now, I'm going to stand here and say that if you could guarantee that one flooding session would cure the dog of their problematic behavior and then allow them to go live their life with no fallout, I would say power to you. I just don't think that you can guarantee that ever. So, and I also, I was a willing participant. I walked into the field in the first place. I didn't realize it was going to be flooded by honeybees, but... I walked into the field knowing that there was a possibility for there to be bees there and I'm an autonomous adult human being. And so that's very different than you placing your dog, your subject directly into that scenario. So that's not what I'm saying to do. I'm saying to simply allow your dog to observe a dog park from a safe distance and from the distance that she thinks is safe. And it will... Like, like I said, if it's working, the dog will start to think that the dogs in the dog park are boring. That's what I want. I want boredom therapy. I want the dog to, over time, decide that dogs are not that exciting because they've been exposed and allowed to look um, as long as they felt necessary. So that's part one of my three-pronged approach. That's desensitization. I am going to be sharing videos and a a few more tips and answering questions on the Patreon page. So if you're not a Patreon member yet, patreon.com slash CogDogRadio. I'm also going to be doing, as I mentioned, a final part to this series, which is all Patreon questions. So if you're coming up with questions now and you want me to answer them, get over on Patreon and put your question in the Barky Lungy thread. All right, we have some Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Rhea. She says, agility question. How do you know when to stop a sport altogether? My dog loves nose work and seems to have an intense enthusiasm for agility, but only his first run. His first run we do. He is full blast and so excited. He drastically slows down on each successive run. Our last training session, our coach had us do three runs, two of 10 obstacles and and of 20 Um, I'm not totally sure I understand that, but I think you did two 10-obstacle courses and one 20-obstacle course. His enthusiasm was gone by the end of the 20-obstacle run. He... Stuck with me, but he was clearly over it. Should I stick with shorter sequences to keep enthusiasm up? He refuses the dog walk and teeter now too, which is why I'm thinking maybe this just isn't the sport for him, but maybe I just need to modify to suit my lumbering seven-year-old lab mix. 70 pounds, seven years old. So Rio, while I was reading this, I was thinking, what kind of dog are we talking about and how old is it? <laughs> and how big is it? And then you answer my question. A lab mix that's seven years old and 70 pounds. And if this dog is not overweight, and is 70 pounds that's a big dog right and think about most of the dogs doing agility um, are more like in the 45 maybe 50 pound range if not smaller than that so understand that just at its core agility will be harder for a dog of this size and a dog of this size at age seven is older Than a 40 pound dog that's seven years old so understand that too that there's some um, science of aging going on there as well not saying your dog is ancient or even a senior i don't know your dog but he's a big dog he's a big guy so the first question that i have that i want you to answer for yourself is has this dog been fully vet checked meaning his heart has been checked so Has he been gone over by a sports medicine veterinarian or somebody at least with a special interest area in that or at least maybe a GP, a general practice vet, who does sports herself, right? So somebody needs to have their hands on this dog who knows what they're doing. And I would humbly say that just a chiropractor is not enough. You need, um, and I only say that not because of anything you said, but because of what I frequently hear from the agility community, is that they think that is enough. And it isn't. Um, You need to have an actual doctor, um, not, I'm sorry, (laughs) a lot of veterinarians are also chiropractors, but... Basically, you need a veterinarian who knows what they're doing to put their hands on this dog. That's number one. And his heart needs to be checked out to make sure that that's fine because this lack of stamina makes me worry about that a little bit. Um, If everything checks out, then I'm going to say he's not fit enough to do what you're asking him to do and you need a fitness routine for him. Um, That good sports medicine vet that you have put her hands on him can probably do that for you. And... All of that aside, I'm always interested in only doing as much agility as my dog is actually interested in doing, right? And then if your dog is interested in doing agility seven days a week all day long, like some of mine are, then I limit it for them to make sure that their body is not, you know, too beat up by the sport. But he is telling you about how much he can physically do. It's not about... I don't don't think this is mental. I don't think this is about enthusiasm. I think this is about actual physical stamina and that's how you should treat it. So it's not necessarily that you should quit, but it is that you need to adjust how you're doing it. And if you push him to the point of exhaustion every time you train, he will start to refuse to do agility and you're starting to see that with the dog walk and the teeter. Now that's a pretty specific thing for him to refuse. Those are both the skinny board obstacles neither of them are physically as hard as the a-frame but you're telling me he's not refusing the a-frame so that tells me the skinny board is the hard thing if the skinny board is the hard thing then balance is hard and if he does maybe have a heart condition or is just too out of shape to be doing what you're asking him to do he won't feel like his balance is good enough to do the dog walk and the teeter so Get him fully checked out. If he checks out, ask him how much he'd like to do and don't do any more than that. And perhaps, you know, he's 70 70 pounds and seven years old. Maybe you guys dig into all of this stuff, do a little bit more agility for fun for a couple of years and then retire into nose work. I'm glad that you're thinking about it and thinking about his wellness and kind of what he wants to do. And I really respect that. All right, next one. Laurel says... On the podcast about Clicker Expo, you talked about Lindsay Wood Brown, and if I got it right, rewarding operant behavior during classical counter conditioning. My boy resource guards his dinner bowl against people. I worked for months on this and have come to a place of radical acceptance. We have a management approach that works with this, and I'm okay with it. But when I give him a bone in his wire crate, because I don't want to take a chance on resource guarding between the dogs... I can't get him to leave the crate or the bone. Currently, I throw treats all over the floor and eventually he comes out and I close the door. Last time it took 20 minutes. Any suggestions on how to deal with this? So Laurel, I can't give you a full behavior modification plan for this and I know that you know that. Um, But understand that Lindsay was actually talking um, about this via resource guarding. So her protocol might be one um, that you check out, I believe, and I could go dig this for you but i want you to go dig into it i believe there are some talks on this available um, for purchase through clickertraining.com um, probably through the karen Pryor academy so kind of dig into that and see i could be wrong about that But essentially, what you're saying to me is that you you have let go the behavior modification on the bowl because it's not a huge problem for you. But what is still a huge problem for you is a bone in a crate. And I would say that you definitely need a professional to help you get to a point where you can take him out of the crate with the bone in it. And I hate this answer because I want him to have a bone. But unless you have time... To wait for him to give up on the bone he probably can't have one um, in his crate and I wish I had a better answer for you than that Laurel other than to maybe dig in and see if you can find some of those resources from Lindsey Brown um, and see what you can see what you can find there you may also dig into Jean Donaldson's book mine um, I think you probably already have but that's another resource on resource guarding for you and Maybe we can find you a local trainer that can help you in person with this um, if we keep digging in. So shoot me an email, you know where to find me, and maybe we can see if we can get you a good referral for that. If anybody else is experiencing something similar, understand that environmental management is your first line of defense. So maybe not giving the dog the bone at all or only giving him chews that he will fully consume so that they are gone. Um would be a great idea. Your other option might be, and I don't know if he will guard an empty Kong, but giving him a Kong and then not trying to get him out or get the Kong out until the Kong is empty. If he will guard an empty Kong, then obviously that's not an option for you. All right, last one. Knowing you're a huge proponent of decompression walks, I'd love to hear your perspective on the issue. I've been pondering for quite some time. Basically, how do you balance wanting to take your dog off lead (laughs) for decompression walks with being respectful of other people's space and safety. I have a 15-month-old intact male field line lab. He loves to be off-leash and I love to let him off-leash when it's safe. I don't worry about him running off as he is a very reliable recall. My issue is that he is super friendly, over greeter. We are addressing this issue by taking private lessons, taking a class focused on polite greetings and also taking calling all dogs through FDSA, but it's admittedly a work in progress. Despite our efforts, I'm hesitant to allow him off lead in legally off lead areas for fear that he might jump on a person or dog. We have encountered this in the past. He jumped up on an older man and I left feeling like a total jerk. Then I proceeded to enter a shame spiral feeling like I failed my dog, the general public, my own expectations, etc. As a correction I haven't really let him off lead much so now he's not getting his much needed hiking time and when I do I'm totally stressed out that we will run into someone and he might jump on them. Any general thoughts? Do I just wait until I know for sure that he won't jump on people? I worry that means he won't get to practice good behavior and the -the over-the-top greetings will persist. Marie, Thank you for this question, I think this is one that a lot of people have. The first thing I'm going to point out is that you said right here that he has a very reliable recall and yet you were concerned about him jumping on a person, which means that his recall is not as reliable as you think. If he can't recall away from a person, then I'm not going to call that a reliable recall. I hope that makes sense so yes working hard on your recall is a good first line of defense um but you're right you can't just not let him off leash because then you'll have way too much pent up energy especially in a field line lab you guys they need more physical body running than a lot of breeds do especially when they're young So I would be working very hard to seek out areas that are barren, that are empty. So rather than going to these, you know, you might be going to dog parks or like, you know, you set off leash legal areas. So you might be going somewhere where there are too many people and too many dogs. Mostly he shouldn't be running into anybody on these walks. How do you get that done? Well, you can check out Sniff Spot. You can ask people that have property. um, You can find some forest service roads, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, just kind of search until you find it as far as your perfect space and then work very, very hard on both a recall away from social situations as well as a default attention behavior in social situations. Um, Essentially, if my dogs see a person or a dog, I want them to come back to me. I do that by cueing them to come eat anytime they do see a person or a dog um, early on. I don't do that if they are concerned about the person or the dog, but I do it right away before they have a chance to kind of grow any concerns. I think you're doing all of the things that you need to be doing, but you do have to continue to have him off lead in, hopefully as barren of an area as you can. And then truthfully practice some breathing exercises and try to relax yourself while you're out there so try to just breathe it out know that you do not have a crystal ball you do not know if a person is going to come around the corner or not you have to kind of take that chance I don't want your dog to hurt anybody either um and so I'm you know kind of hesitating here to say you need to just keep getting out there but you do need to just keep getting out there Most of the time, it is going to be just fine. It sounds like you had one bad incident, and now you haven't been back out. And um, that's just not how it's going to work. You have to keep getting out. You will continue to have things happen that you don't like. Um, It happens all the time. This is the price we pay, basically, for giving our dogs what they actually need in the world that we live in, which means that sometimes stuff is going to happen. The majority of the time nothing happens and everything goes beautifully you could also potentially hire some friends of yours to appear on the trail to help teach him to come back to you and these people will be under strict instruction to not interact with him um and you may even give them you know some tools to deal with him jumping up on you and i'll leave that to your discretion so keep working you're doing the right stuff, but you've got to keep getting them out. And I really hope that you do. All right. That's it for this week. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDog Radio community and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash to become a patron.